0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Learning Rewired, where leaders are challenged to rethink what, how and why they and their organizations learn. Learning Rewired is proudly presented by HeadSpring, custom executive development specialists as part of HeadSpring's commitment to fostering cultures of continuous learning. I am your host, Bevan Rees. Business Roundtable, an association of Chief Executive Officers of America's leading companies, recently released a statement redefining the purpose of the corporation. Each version of the document since 1997 has focused on shareholder primacy, but for the first time, business has been recognized as serving all stakeholders, customers, suppliers, community shareholders, and also employees. These are lofty ideals, but are organizations really ready for this? How are organizations structured? Does that distribution of power within those organizations really make stakeholder equity viable? To discuss this topic and other juicy topics, I have with me today Kit Kruchman, Head of Organizational and Culture Design at Co-Collective. Kit is also Global Executive Director of WIN, Women in Innovation, a nonprofit that strives to get more female representation in technology and innovation roles. You might have read her work in Inc. on topics such as compensation models of the future, why the future of team building is curation, and confronting the hierarchy dilemma. She's also a regular guest on HR and Talent Stages, sharing her passion for building future-facing communities. Kit Kruchman, welcome.
1: Thank you, Bevan. Really pleased to be here.
0: Yeah, always great to chat to you. So I'm really looking forward to this today. Kit, perhaps it's it's useful for us to, to start where I led in, around the Business Roundtable and really what sounds like a dramatic announcement, a repurposing of business to serve more than just the shareholders. Um, and, and as I said, lofty ideals indeed. The, obviously, the first question that arises is, well, how is that actually suddenly going to be possible uh, when we've been f- dealing with shareholder primacy for so long as the primary kind of point of purpose for corporations? And uh, mm-hmm. though there may be will, um, there's obviously a lot of systemic structure and hurdles that businesses will have to engage with. Is, is that a fair assumption? I mean, are there these kind of blockages that we can anticipate will take quite a long time to to move before we'll actually see real change?
1: Absolutely and I'm, I'm glad you used the word systemic because you know when I think about, first of all I think it, it's an amazing step forward and a public, a public announcement like that from people holding major authority is a huge step forward mm-hmm. to think about more equal power distribution. But I really believe that you have to think systemically, right?
0: Mm-hmm. We have
1: to think across what are the authority models that exist currently in organizations? What are the systems and structures that actually uphold them? And then what is the culture that protects them?
0: Mm. So there th- was an interesting phrase there the culture that protects them. So, am I understanding correctly that? culture is related to, but not necessarily an output of these structures? It's
1: a great question. So one of the things that I think about when I, when I talk about culture is there's external culture, right? So the way that we talk about culture and what's happening in the world, and then there's power distribution, both inside and outside of organizations, but Mm -hmm. the power distribution inside of organizations impacts internal culture, right? But ironically, external culture is actually impacting the way that power is distributed within organizations mm-hmm. let me let me explain a little bit more mm-hmm. so what i mean by that is we build authority models based on our lived experience why does that matter because subconsciously if you're used to seeing a certain type of people in authority you associate these characteristics with leaders right mm-hmm. the foundational model for authority is a family unit. Um, Many families, but not all, many families operate actually as a patriarchy. Mm -hmm. So whether you are a female or male, if your primary decision maker in the family is clearly the father, you're already from a young age building a bias towards associating men with leadership positions, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So there was a great article in, um, actually, HBR, Harvard Business Review, just um, did a, they do a big idea, and it was all about gender equity in the workplace. And Melinda Gates had a great article that's worth a read. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, all aspects of American life, she was talking about American culture specifically. It is most often men who set policy, allocate resources, lead companies, shape markets, and determine whose stories get told. Mm -hmm. So if you into, If you're building organizations and you're actually bringing to bear the external perspective that exists in culture, then you're bringing with you, whether you know it or not, and whether you're a man or a woman, you're bringing with you basically these underlying biases about what authority looks like.
0: Mm-hmm. And if I'm understanding you correctly, that is being consciously or unconsciously built into the systems that make up the organization.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right and it's enforced by you know it's enforced by cultural cultural depictions outside right mm-hmm. so women in movies and the way that women are represented for instance but it's it's being lived out in your lived experience within organizations
0: yeah so i i'm very interested in getting your views on how that actually translates into culture with an organization but before we go there talk me through that that power distribution in organizations. so i mean i don't want to just assume you're talking about a uh, a standard patriarchal hierarchy, or that's what's been, you know, more regularly recognized as a standard patriarchal hierarchy. Uh, what what do you mean when you talk about typical power distribution in organizations?
1: So typical power distribution. I, when I what I'm talking about is where decisions are made, okay. right? And so I think it's really important to think about, you know, whether that is the governing body of the organization, whether that's the board, whether that is the leadership team. If you look at where decisions are made you have to think about who is represented in that view, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's where it impacts culture. Because if you think about, if if a team, if you bring a group of people together and they're making decisions and they're they're not only representing their own bias and their own lived experience, they, they are not necessarily going to be representing the views of stakeholders that might not associate with them Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. and that's where it becomes really difficult because that is what shapes culture and that's what shapes processes and procedures and policies Mm -hmm. i think um, i think parental leave is a really great example of that coming to life right so in organizations that are led by um by individuals who might not need to take advantage of parental leave whether that means that it's a younger bo- younger governing body or a predominantly male governing body then you might not think about how to make sure that we design to make equal parental leave or to model for flexibility and therefore you're not actually creating a systemic um, a system- systemic change in the organization that enables people to operate from different perspectives and different experiences
0: am i understanding correctly that a freer distribution of decision-making power is healthy for the organization?
1: That's a great question. So, I mean, if you think it's not, it's not quite as simple as that, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it It's not as simple as saying, you know what, why don't we distribute decisions across the entire organization, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of times that can create more chaos. I do believe though that it is about three things. It's about representation at decision-making. So that's why I'm such a firm believer in making sure that the leadership represents the community mm-hmm. and that, diverse body of decision makers mm-hmm. right So that you, you make sure that those voices and those minority perspectives are actually being represented so that's number one um, modeling right so modeling is really powerful if you want to see behaviors echoed throughout the organization thinking about what you model whether that's collaborative whether that is thinking about different ways to bring your culture to life and then the last is seeking input so you know it if you have a governing body that isn't as representative, there's absolutely ways to represent different voices. And I think there's incredible technology now that we have access to to actually hear different voices in the room at key moments, right? In, mm-hmm. in a traditional organizational structure, a governing body wouldn't necessarily have access to the voices of those outside the room in that moment, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what's powerful about some of the technology and software that people are creating right now to make sure that there's pulse surveys, that there's employee voice, that even even a, even a platform like Slack, I think is super powerful in terms of running little polls or asking people to speak up and have their voice heard in moments that they wouldn't necessarily be heard.
0: Yeah, we, we've spoken before about how that, that general channel in Slack is, in, in some ways, it plays that, that role of kind of a town hall meeting in an organization sometimes. Uh-huh. Um, and, and there's this there's this I'm hearing there's this real democratization of of input and contribution and you know I suppose ideally there's this invitation to more collaboration in in decision making. A hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. So, so again, yeah. that, that sounds fantastic. From your experience, how doable is that? How open are organizations to moving more towards that? Because we're essentially here talking about a sharing of power. Yeah. And even just talking about power is often a difficult thing for people to do. People don't want to admit that they have power or that they are disempowered. Um, mm. And those are you know this this can be a really touchy territory to get into in the first place. Um, yeah. so, So, what is your experience of that when when working in organizations in this kind of area?
1: yeah, so i would I would say just two things about that. Um, one thing that I've observed is, it, it's actually sometimes less about power existing in organizations, but power changing is very traumatic for people. Mm. Let me tell you what I mean by that. So people get used to power structures very quickly, unfortunately, actually, because people get used to power structures that, that are not great, right, as as evidenced by years of history of power structures being um, exploitative. but when power changes so for instance um let me take let me take an example if somebody has power and they're asked to give it up for some reason that is a deeply emotional and challenging experience Mm -hmm. and so sharing power even for people that consider themselves um very collaborative very open actually is more challenging than you think Mm -hmm. and so that's that for me, that's the danger in in kind of traditional hierarchies, which is that the more that you aggregate power in one place, whether it's a, a role or a person, et cetera, the more that you aggregate power in one place, the more, the harder it is to peel power away.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's really interesting, actually. I'm reading, um, have you read uh, Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Lelou?
0: I have, yeah. Okay. Outstanding, yeah. So
1: is it outstanding, outstanding book. And, and I think it's really helped shift my mindset around organizational paradigms. And for those who haven't read it, it, it talks you through essentially the the developmental stages of organizations, all the way from kind of the original, which is called red tribal way of organizing and distributing power, which is a top down, um, just distribute, distribute responsibilities, mm-hmm. all the way through what's called, um, a green, which is a collaborative, more shared, more values-driven, more cultures-driven way of distributing power where people actually organize around a shared purpose. And as I was rereading some of the, the beginning of um, his book, I saw echoed in the first chapter, the exact description that the business Roundtable um, used when it talked about shifting the purpose of companies. Mm-hmm. And it talk- Really distributing across different stakeholders and thinking about making sure that it's serving the needs not only of the external shareholders, but really also of internal shareholders and ultimately the environment. Mm-hmm. And I think I think what's interesting is that there's a sentence in there where he says that. The challenge is we are not only have all of these different paradigms developed more f- that, more quickly than ever. The, the real thing is that all of these different paradigms are existing at the same time. Mm-hmm. So you could have people operating within an organization from a red paradigm, from a I need what I need to do to succeed here is I need to aggregate power and assign tasks mm-hmm. simultaneously. You could have someone else within your organization operating from this kind of green paradigm that, that you need to define the culture and the values and then operate accordingly mm-hmm. and motivate people to mm-hmm. operate accordingly. Mm-hmm. The problem with those two paradigms, you have an ideological difference in the way that you think about distributing power. Mm-hmm. And when you have ideological differences coexisting, then you have a really hard time moving power evenly. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense?
0: It, it makes it makes total sense to me. And and to to your point, really where we are now is where all these different paradigms coexist. So what where are we moving to next? How do they integrate? How do we how do we work with these different elements and these different ideologies in a structural way in an organization so that they can all fit? How do we how do we centralize power for effective decision making, but also distribute it so we have maximum input over the intelligence available mm-hmm. in the business? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean there's obviously no answer to this immediately <laughs> this is, this is, this is big <laughs> yeah kids, so could you just give us the answer there that'd be yeah, great um I got it. <laughs> but but i suppose this is a fertile territory of of development in organizations
1: i think that figuring out how to build better organizations is one of the most important challenges that we face today mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason for that goes back to what Business Roundtable shared, which is that we have been operating in a paradigm that is actually very destructive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's destructive to the environment. Uh, it's destructive in terms of people's experience. It's actually most people are not engaged, right? There's a ton of statistics about experience in the workforce and burnout. And, and I, I don't think that the current solution is really working. Um, i had a conversation just last night with a, with a group of um, the group of friends about how when you're operating from a paradigm that says that you know financial success is the ultimate outcome you start to assume that happiness is financial success which we all know is is you know not actually true right and so what ends up happening is when you when you're pursuing a particular paradigm that is imposed by external forces you then start to think okay well this that should equate um, satisfaction or, or happiness or joy. And then you pursue that paradigm only to find out that actually those two things are not equated and you didn't make that decision to begin with. Mm, so mm. I know that gets petty, but I think it, it is underlying the challenge of how we actually build organizations today. Um, I, and I think that, you know, my perspective is thinking back to why did we, why did we organize to begin with? Mm, right. Yeah. Like what, why, why, why do we, what is the power of getting people together? Mm. And, and that's where I really believe in bringing in the principles of community. And mm-hmm. you think about the, the power of bringing people together means that you can do more, you can achieve more, mm. right? You can leverage different um, perspectives, different ideas, different um, capabilities to actually achieve more. I mean, modern society was built on people coming together and collaborating at scale, and we've achieved so much because we've worked together at at a scale that we would not have been able to work alone, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I think what we need to do is, I think a lot of the conversation. I'm a believer in the idea that having purpose um, driving your organization and actually really generating the culture and attracting advocates and participants is the best way to organize because Mm -hmm. you agree around a central purpose you agree around a certain central value and and that's accepted right there's a lot of conversation i was just reading an article in hbr about purpose and strategy but the biggest challenge for people is thinking about how you actually turn it into practice Mm. like how do you take this and Make it a part of the everyday operations of the way people behave, of the the processes that support it, and the culture that enforces it. Mm-hmm. I, I really again back to the systemic idea of I think you have to really think about it both from the top down and the bottom up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you have to. Determine what matters and I think you have to determine how you measure it and how you model it Mm -hmm. and how you act when it doesn't go that way Mm -hmm. and What it drives. right and so I think where I see organizations actually pursuing real systemic change um, It's policies that are accompanied by norms. So norms is the side that is culture, right? Mm -hmm. So if you do this somebody Behaves in this way. You referenced a norm earlier when you talked about this idea of organizations that are moving. Um, we'll call it like more towards the teal direction that um, Alu talks mm-hmm. about. But mm-hmm. like you where know, power becomes a bad thing. Mm-hmm. That that's a norm, right? Where the aggregation of power is is seen as a negative. Um, in my psychology program, in my master's program. We went through what's called a group relations conference and one of our fir- and it was to study authority. And one of our first observations was that the people taking up authority in the group were immediately punished.
0: Mm-hmm. Punished in what way?
1: What's interesting what, by the group. Okay. So it, it's very interesting. And it was happening, all of this happens subconsciously, right? When you get a group of people together and somebody behaves in a certain way, there's this moment where the way people react starts to set set the norm. Mm. So if I came into a room and I said, no one's talking, it's all confusing, what's happening? And I said, all right, well, I think we should set an agenda. Mm
0: -hmm. You'd become a leader.
1: Yes, Mm -hmm. I've taken up power, Mm. I've taken up authority.
0: Mm.
1: Now, the way that people react to me taking up that authority establishes a norm. So I'm in this room and I say, okay, I think we should set an agenda. Somebody else in the room says, agendas are restrictive. Mm-hmm. I can't believe you would have suggested that. Mm-hmm. And then someone else sees that signal of my authority being rejected in that moment. And they say, exactly, exactly what he said. Mm-hmm. Agendas are restrictive, and we don't, we don't need those here. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to be an organization that is agenda free. Mm -hmm. And what you see is you start to see now, what are people picking up in the room? Now there's somebody who hasn't said anything. Maybe she's a woman. Mm -hmm. Maybe she's okay. Well, what I've observed is a woman spoke up and her idea was um, negated. Mm -hmm. I've also seen that anyone who speaks up is punished. Mm -hmm. Punished. I I use that word um, flexibly, but it is is a form of social punishment to say, Mm -hmm. okay, you're wrong and bad. So what have I learned about the norms in that meeting? I've learned that speaking up is bad, and that any attempt to create process or structure will be rejected in, in favor of um, kind of a more free form. Mm-hmm. So we're picking up data points about the culture of the meeting. Mm-hmm. And and I'm giving that example to, to share that that happens on a large scale across organizations every single day, mm-hmm. right? That the behaviors that are subconsciously or consciously being affirmed or denied in every single meeting and every single gathering and every single town hall are sending signals, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. much like it's like sending signals of do don't do don't do don't mm-hmm. and as you start to pick up that information you start to operate in a different way because mm-hmm. you're interested in your own kind of experience and survival in that organization it's mm-hmm. actually relatively biological
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so just to reflect on what you're saying this is why it becomes absolutely critical that those values guiding the organization are clearly established and then modeled and exactly. reinforced on a consistent basis right because
1: yeah Yeah. exactly
0: yeah um because otherwise the values that begin to take over the culture you know whether you decide to do this intentionally or not there's going to be some form of culture so and and i I think you've said it beautifully before um culture is values manifested as behavior something something like that
1: exactly and i think a lot of times people talk about values and they they you know, a ton of organizations have values on their walls, they have values in their handbook, but they don't talk about what values mean. Yeah. And you actually get very explicit. And then you need to think about the structures and the systems that support that on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's the gap for me is this space between purpose and practice, mm-hmm. um, where it's not enough, you know, we talk here at Co-Collective, we talk about this idea of story doing and it being not enough to just have a great story, you have to actually think about how you turn that into action and for Mm -hmm. me the same thing is true when you think about building organizations you have to figure out what is that overarching purpose what what are those set of values and then what does it mean in terms of how you behave Mm -hmm. because to your point there are both explicit and implicit values happening at all times Mm -hmm. and back to the original point about authority models people come to an organization to any kind of gathering of people bringing their own biases mm-hmm. they bring their own lived experience outside inside and those associations are carried forward with them mm-hmm. and so you kind of need to figure out how how do those things fit into the model that we want to create and mm-hmm. how do we be explicit that a certain kind of behavior is not acceptable and a certain kind of behavior is
0: mm-hmm. in a realm where all the stakeholders well where businesses the purpose of business is expanded to include multiple stakeholders not just shareholders values now become more important than they ever were before. Suddenly now this raises this big question about, okay, well, what are we really about? If we're not just serving the bottom line and shareholders, you know, what are we here for? Um, and so that's a profound question. I think every organization should be asking itself anyway. I think inevitably it's going to, part of the, this, the answer is going to arrive at what you're talking about in terms of the culture that that it emanates from how values are implemented within the organisation, or established, or not established, however it works. Mm-hmm. Who in the organisation is responsible for that? And and have you seen examples of those people doing that well?
1: Um, there's a couple of really famous case studies, like the the case study of Davita. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but mm-hmm. it was an organisation that is truly values driven. And I, I think what what it the what really makes that work is how much the individuals within the organization take pride in those values mm-hmm. and reinforce them themselves right when i talk about this idea of both like top down and bottom up i think it's really and you know we should say from side to side as well mm-hmm. right like you want what you want is you want peers to be enforcing the values to each other mm. so if you have a situation where you know an authority layer is enforcing values top down then you actually just have a traditional power our model where a set of people who have power are setting the rules and enforcing them. Mm -hmm. What you really want is you want a set of values that people kind of convene around. They join the organization because of the values. They participate in the work that the organization does because of those values and they enforce those values to each other. So for instance, right? Like you can have an organization, let me take a more extreme example. You can have an organization that at the top says we are, you know, we have no tolerance of any sexual harassment in this environment. Mm-hmm. But if you go down into the organization and you have a group of peers who are like, oh yeah, like, ha that's so funny, that sexist comment you made, mm-hmm. then you, it's not it's not actually happening. It's not being lived because there's a layer of people mm-hmm. who are still operating in a way that is not in line with those values. And so what you want is for someone to make a comment that maybe is off color and for one of their p- trusted peers to say, hey, actually, I-, I felt like that comment wasn't really in line with our values and, and, you know, it's a so big deal, but I just wanted to call that out and have, you know, take the opportunity for us to reflect on that. And that if you see that, like that to me is success. When you see the organization kind of self-regulating mm-hmm. instead of having a regulatory from the top, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you have to set up the structures and the systems and the incentives to actually create that. It's not, you know, it's, it, it actually, to me, people talk about it culture as like the soft side of, of organizational design and i completely disagree mm-hmm. i think it's the hard part mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. i think it's the part that needs to be thoughtfully designed and thoughtfully um supported and repeated and communicated and there's such a an important structure to culture
0: mm. yeah i mean it's that that, that old phrase which <laughs> never sits well with me that uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast and um yeah. The part of that that doesn't sit well with me is that actually culture should be strategic.
1: Culture is strategy for breakfast. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. That's that's yeah. exactly it. So, so I mean, with you know, I mean, we we've all I mean sort of had an experience of this already. I mean, the conversation has moved more towards values, but I think anyone even you know, working the last twenty years in a major corporation will have felt that that massive um Separation between kind of the the corporate vision, you know, which is mm-hmm. normally this beautiful, lofty idea, and and then what actually happens on the office floor, that that's that's a real challenge, right? Because people, I mean, you say people join organisations because of the values of that organisation, and I, I suppose inherently, in one way or another, they are doing that. um But sometimes mm-hmm. people also just join organisations because they need a yeah. job, right, and, and they need of to course. put bread on the table, and so. This, this sounds like continuously, there needs to be some kind of, we, when we just talk about culture and strategy, there has to be a strategy here for almost continuous investment in mm-hmm. constantly bringing mm-hmm. this. Because, I mean, even even the idea of a value-driven organisation is mm-hmm. itself a value, right? So, okay. you know, we, you know we're, we're actually almost talking about, well, I suppose in the context of this conversation, we're talking about the future of organisations. We're taking the assumption that the roundtable declaration is a corporate declaration of of what needs to happen in business, and so this is you know kind of where organisations have to move to this greater inclusivity.
1: Right. Um,
0: but in order for that to be a success and not just be this constant lip service, uh, mm. which to a large degree has happened in other ways in organisations for a long time anyway, how, how yeah. do we prevent this from just becoming more lip service? And and that has to be continuous involvement and investment by key role players in the business, those who look after the culture, the values of the organization, almost the custodians of those areas of the business. But I'm, what, what I'm hearing from you is that obviously it doesn't stop there. It has to go to everyone in the organization. There has to be this almost universal accountability for making this happen.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's one of the biggest challenges to as we think about designing better organizations. Um, I think that that's where you have to really look at things like incentive structures, right? So it always makes me always makes me laugh when I think about um how misaligned incentive structures are with the way that most companies say they want to be in the world Mm -hmm. right Um, so we have yeah we have organizations that say they want to be collaborative and then bonus people individually Mm. right it's like it's, it's, it's very simple it's like you know I remember so way back in the day I spent some time waiting tables and that was a That was a great learning experience about collective incentives because I worked at a restaurant that pooled tips Mm -hmm. and you, you see a set of behaviors that where people are helping each other because they know that at the end of the day, it's not about, you know, they could get some personal satisfaction for getting a um, really large tip on a tough table, but at the same time, you're, you know, that it's all going back. Into the group of people that you're working with. So you're very incentivized to help out. And if somebody looks stressed out, you just jump in there. And I and I that was a really one of my first lessons from an early age around thinking about collective incentives. Not only I, I really am not a huge believer in like financial incentives being the only thing, there's a lot of evidence that financial incentives actually don't motivate people, mm-hmm. that, you know, above a certain level. however. I do think that what it does is it signals a way of operating, a way of like we're a team, and therefore our you know the distribution of resources goes across the team, mm-hmm. and that enforces the value of collaborative work. Mm-hmm. And so you know I think again a very famous example, Zappos is a great one where the majority of um, customer service associates in customer service all up are generally incentivized for how many calls they can get done in a certain amount of time. And Zappos actually inverted that and said, "We're going to we're going to reward people who can stay on the phone for the longest, mm-hmm. because we want our we want our customers to be having such a good experience that they want to stay on. That we're really delivering happiness, which is which is their kind of." Um, call you know their sort of mission. Um, we want to be delivering happiness, and in order to do that, we want people to have a really personal, intimate experience with the customer service associate. And therefore, we're gonna we're gonna shift the incentives. And they had one woman who was on the phone with a customer for 11 hours. I mean that. I mean, first of all, that's ridiculous, but second of all, it's totally iconic, right? Mm-hmm. It's a symbol of this 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 bringing of humanity back into a, a an experience that is really like humanity draining both for customer service associates and for the customer.
0: Mm, mm, mm. So, I mean, that's, that's a great place to to just kind of tail off into the the end of this discussion kit, because th- that sense of humanity and bringing humanity into, into business, um, yeah. you know, that that could be done just by leaving people to their resources and just letting humans be humans. And we hope that the best parts of our nature come to the surface and, we gravitate around that, and you have this—you know—to use the word that you used earlier—community of really happy and um, and compassionate people treating each other in a fair way. I mean, we all know that that doesn't always happen in organizations. So, so yeah. how do we how do we plan for this? How do we? I mean, how do how do we actually create a, an organization where people learn to mm. be like this in a more consistent and reliable way?
1: You know, I've been thinking about this a lot, as you know, mm-hmm. um, and I think one of the biggest challenges, what what I'm trying to peel apart is this idea of people coming in to organizations with all of the this bad training. What I mean by that is all of this training in their other experiences that that is signaling to them how to create value, what matters, what happiness looks like, and all of those things. And, and I think that those are really difficult things to untangle. I think that the organizations that do it the best are organizations genuinely invested in setting up a system of learning and growth in an organization that throughout that process really establishes what matters and what's important uh, to that organization Mm -hmm. in a way that's really taken up by the various stakeholders. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, I'm very passionate about education and education reform and really thinking about the the organizations of the future as these learning centers. Mm-hmm. That's actually what's going to draw people into organizations, opportunities to learn, to add new skills, to close skill gaps, to learn about how to lead. And so to me, the more that organizations can be investing in developing and growing their people on all levels, I don't mean traditional development. I mean like orga- organizations that actually give coaching that um give resources both from a personal level and a professional level Mm -hmm. i think our organization way ahead of the curve
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. am i hearing you there talking about learning as a primary value itself
1: yeah so you know i love the literature about growth mindset versus performance mindset Mm -hmm. and i think organizations that are really oriented around growth mindset instead of performance mindset. We don't talk a lot about what, you know, what does an organization look like? We talk about what people look like who have a growth mindset, but we Mm -hmm. don't spend a lot of time talking about what a growth mindset organization looks like. Mm -hmm. But to me, a growth mindset organization is an organization that is invested in learning and taking everybody along for that journey Mm -hmm. and being really self-reflective and being able to shift paradigms and grow as our world is changing
0: faster than ever. So those people in the organization who are really committed to this, who are really committed to fostering this environment and this culture of continuous learning, continuous growth, and, and to use your point development, but in the big with a capital D, so taking in the whole of the human being. Um, What do those people need? And I'm talking about here, you know, I'm talking about people in the talent areas of the business, the learning and development professionals. What do they need from the organization to make they that happen? To be a,
1: yeah, they needed to be a strategic priority. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, I think this has been the problem for HR leaders for a long time, which is that the the rise of HR was kind of this like, oh, right, the human capital side of the business needs to be cared for. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, people are not machines, mm-hmm. and that was the that was kind of the birth of HR. And the problem is, even though, even though we recognize now how important talent and people are in organizations, we still don't, you know, we still treat people like they are kind of replaceable um, resources. Mm-hmm. And we ha- we have a hard time investing, we have a hard time thinking big picture and saying like actually, if you invest inside, you'll see results outside. And that's why I think the strongest cases have been made in making the business case for um, people initiatives, for talent initiatives, for diversity, for gender equity, Uh, all of these things actually do move the needle. There's real evidence that organizations that have more diverse stakeholders are more creative, more innovative are, you know, are growing faster. And so that angle that a lot of people who share this passion have been taking is that this is really, this is a business imperative but you need the senior leadership, the people who are making decisions and allocating resources to treat it as if it is, right?
0: Mm -hmm. So just to close the circle on where we started this conversation around the distribution of decision-making and, you know, in inverted commas power within the organization, um, am I hearing, you know, there is a conversation about how that is done with an organization and what's important to that organization and how it's done. But what's equally important is what is done with that decision-making power, regardless of where it is allocated. And, and what's really critical is that it's being used intentionally and strategically to foster this organizational development that begins with the people within the organization.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. I, you know, I think, my, you know, my personal mission is to change some of the traditional authority paradigms and create organizations that are really benefiting all stakeholders. And that's why I'm excited about the business roundtable thing, because mm-hmm. it it feels really To me, if we want to actually impact the outside environment, we need to start from within and make sure that the organizations we design are really representative of diverse voices that are going to be a part of this kind of better, um, this better world.
0: Mm. (laughs) Like you say, it's top down, bottom up, side to side, inside out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's really, yeah, inside that's out. really powerful.
1: It's yeah, a good one. I'm, it's it's literally it's like taking a shirt and everything you could do with it. It's it's just like flip top down, bottom up, inside out. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. But that is, you know that is that is that's a that's a systemic view, right? And I think that that's what organizations really struggle with thinking systemically and thinking of things as a virtuous holistic cycle. What's ironic to me is that in, in nature, that's a given, mm. right? The way, the way that the world is designed is systemic, mm. right? Every, every action has an equal reaction. And yet when we create things, the inputs and the outputs somehow don't equate. So to me, when I think about like we're so, humans are so smart, but also not smart enough to figure out how to create regenerative <laughs> cycles
0: absolutely yeah we almost have to uh, uncover or discover them rather than yeah. then create them
1: yeah
0: kit thank you so much
1: yeah it's my favorite topic and you know i think that conversations like this are what actually hopefully um kind of move the needle in terms of starting conversations about how we create organizations where power and authority is distributed in ways that really benefits um, all stakeholders as opposed to a select few.
0: Fantastic. Kit Krugman, thank you so much for your time and I uh, look forward to chatting to you again soon.
1: Looking forward to it.
0: Thank you for listening. For more information about our guest or to access some of the resources discussed in this episode, please see the information section in your podcast player. If you have enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and stay connected to the latest ideas shared in Rewired, proudly presented by HeadSpring. Until next time, I'm your host, Bevan Rees.